Hi, my name is Saul, and this is the story of London. This episode is an end-of-season special, both as a way to denote a change in the tone and overall narrative of the series going forward, and because the story of London itself is about to change. Everything up until now has basically been the opening chapters, the introduction to the tale of the city itself, how it came to begin its journey to our modern era. That journey truly begins in the next few decades and centuries, where London ceases to be a place where things happen and starts to become a place that's the instigator of things happening. And so, mostly so new listeners can grasp the scale of the tale we've told up to now, as the first season's conclusion, it's time to narrate the story of London from prehistory all the way up to around the opening years of the 10th century. Everything that is said in this short episode is merely a simplified version of the previous 17 episodes, taking about 12 plus hours worth of material and making it about 30 minutes long. So if I say anything in this summary that makes you go, wait, I, I never knew that, then please feel free to find the relevant podcast episode where we go into way more detail in that. And for those who have followed along and have sometimes felt that the story of London has been lost in a myriad of lots of details, this will condense it all in, I hope, into a nice narrative tale. All right, so without further ado then, welcome to chapter 18 of the story of London, the story so far. Humans have lived in the area we today call London for as long as humans have lived on the island of Britain, but with both the passing of time and the arrival of a giant city above it, the traces of these, our most ancient ancestors, are long lost to us and very difficult to find. It's not a natural place, however, to build a city. Why? Well, the region is basically a wide floodplain nestled between two raised areas. To the south was the elevated territories we today call Dulwich Hill and Hernhill, which run down to a wide floodplain, before reaching a vast and still tidal river. On the opposite bank, you suddenly come across two small hills, separated by a small river, which then leads to a raised area that stretched back towards what we today call Highgate and Hampstead. Most of it was marshland, fed by a score of rivers which dominated its geography, rivers which today we call the Tyburn, the Lee, the Fleet, the Walbrook, the Westbourne, the Neckingen, the Ephra, the Falkenbrook, and more. So it's basically a large marsh, dominated by a giant, fast-flowing river with occasional pockets of solid land. We know the first traces of humans living in the region we discover around six and a half thousand years ago. We have Neolithic remains to be found by the riverside where Lambeth meets Westminster and around the Vauxhall region. Here we know riverside wooden homes were constructed, maybe even jetties or even a bridge. These were river folk, it seemed, finding substance out of the abundant fish and marsh animals in the region. 
We suspect that upon Cornhill, in today's city of London, someone created what we now name a caused way enclosure. That's a Neolithic ritual site used as a gathering place for communal feasting by our Stone Age ancestors. It appears as if what we today call the City of London was once a religious site dedicated to coming together of people gathering, feasting as one, no doubt arriving from the scattered river folk who fished and caught eels in the riverways around them, perhaps creating a sense of community. By the Bronze Age, we know settlement in the region was continuing and we find a large smelting site located to the north of the river, but we know that most residents of the region seemed to favour the areas on firmer, less floodable grounds. Uh, we find their traces in the barrows and burial mounds in the high places of the south, overlooking the Thames below. This predisposition towards living on firmer and higher ground continued on as time passed. By the advent of the much more troubled and violent Iron Age, we find an enclosed Iron Age village located on what is now Wimbledon Common. But these traces were just scattered fragments and we have more questions about this era than answers. And whatever was here, none of it was a precursor to what we call London. That place was born out of the coming of a foreign superpower to these islands. London was entirely created by the Romans. Londinium, which sits today where we have the city of London, was a settlement with a strange history. The original version, a small town that emerged out of a legionary crossing point over the river, was only around for around 20 years before it was destroyed by Bodicia and her Iceni tribesmen in a fury of fire and violence. But soon afterwards, as the Romans rebuilt and the new regime of the Emperor Nero sought to differentiate their policy in Britannia from the policy of the previous Emperor Claudius, Londinium 2.0 was designated the provincial capital of Britannia. Around a giant fort on Cornhill, a new town was quickly built, now gaining from vast amounts of imperial investment. It contained a large forum, public baths, an amphitheatre, temples and decent port facilities. Its sea access allowed it to become the central destination for goods being conveyed from the continent to the Roman legions as they pushed back the boundaries of the empire further and further to the north. In time, this military logistical hub became a successful entrepot, allowing civilian fleets gain military contracts, in increasing wealth, profitability and above all the population. Yet the simple narrative that the Romans brought civilization to Britain and all was quiet and well within their lands is a myth. This was the wildest, most northerly province of the Roman Empire. It would suffer from barbarian raids almost constantly and was a place whose loyalty to the emperor would vary depending upon the specific emperor in question. Britannia was a good place for men who sought to usurp the purple to begin their campaigns in. Now most of these failed, but some, like Constantine the Great, would succeed. Constantine never forgot his debt to Britain for supporting his rise to the top first, and as such, between 320 and 340, Londinium was really in its golden age, 
a population of about 60,000 or so, large-scale investment from a dynamic emperor, firmly part of the Roman Empire. But in the decades before, and especially after this date, Londinium was never as secure. It had built its walls, for example, during the reign of Commodus, when raids by Picts and Irish were so ferocious that someone in Britannia thought it prudent to invest the money to build such walls around the city. The docks were expanded as the province became increasingly dependent upon foreign trade, and that interdependence saw a bevy of would-be emperors raise their armies in Britannia and then march south to Gaul to stake their usually futile claims upon the title of emperor, each time reducing the garrisons in Britain. From 365 until 410, Roman control over the city of Londidium would wax and wane. Yes, the culture was Roman, always Roman. But direct political control and direct political loyalty would vary every few years, it seems. Meanwhile, across the Channel, the neighbourhood provinces were being ravaged as the Western Roman Empire was overrun by waves of new invaders. Londinium's economy, dependent upon trade as it was, collapsed during the 370s, so much so that right across Britannia, coins ceased to be used as currency and would not really return for nearly 400 years. Londinium began to go into a steep and sudden decline. While there existed men and women who tried to retain the previous luxurious Roman lifestyles, including a small cluster of rich families living in the southeast corner of Londinium, by the 450s, Londinium was dead. The vibrant city of the Romans was abandoned and it became a ruin, a relic of what it was, and thus Londinium 2.0 died. As we enter what is inaccurately called the Dark Ages, finding London becomes difficult. The 5th century saw Londinium die, but also saw the birth of what we would call the third version of London, separate from the Roman settlement, Londonwick, and its origin tells of a very complicated tale. Over the 5th and 6th centuries, we saw the first waves of new settlers arrive from the continent, a group of people who in time would be called the Anglo-Saxons. But understand, the exact term Anglo-Saxon should never be used to describe these people until sometime around the 9th century. For the next few hundred years, if we're being precise, we should use names like Angles, Jutes, Franks, Frisians, Saxons and more, a, a veritable smorgasbord of people sailing across the waters of the English Channel to live here. Also, we should not allow later romantic versions of what happened fill our minds. These were not invaders per se. Almost all of them were dirt poor farmers who left the war-torn lands of Europe seeking somewhere marginally more peaceful to settle. They were refugees almost exclusively settling in basic residences scattered across the east of Britain. Now, the standard telling of this moment in history suggests that the Germanic settlers drove out the native Britons, but appearances can be deceptive. So while these new settlers did settle mostly in the east of Britain, and many of the native Britons did move westwards, as many Britons stayed where they were as left, and the mixing of the two groups was very widespread. 
Now, the native population of Britain did diminish during this era with the outbreak of a version of the plague, which the native Britons seemed to have less immunity to than the newcomers. And there were climate changes taking place that made the west of Britain more fertile than the east, so people went where they could grow more food. But whatever the actual reasons for this population shift, the era saw the birth of a bunch of small but growing nations along the east coast of Britain. Nations with names like the East Saxons or Essex, or the Jutish Frankish Kingdom of Kent, and the more southerly West Saxons. These bodies arose in a complex era of expansion and colonization and occasional warfare. And all we really need to know was that it was during this era that London was reborn as Londonwick. Londonwick, the Saxon version of London, utterly ignored the old Roman runes. Probably for logistical reasons, the new village or town would need nearby farmland to feed its residents. The area behind the old Roman walls was ruins. Not good agricultural land, honestly. Far better than to set up shop about a mile down river around the region we today call Covent Garden. From here down towards Trafalgar Square and along the Strand, a Saxon settlement grew. From the moment of its creation, it seems to have been designated a marketplace, a natural gathering place for people to come together and sell their wares. And you can tell that from its name, London Wick, the London Market. This was, however, the post-Roman era, don't forget, so there was no coin-based currency at the time. So this meant that food became the primary currency of people. Londonwick became then the home of a simple barter-based marketplace and grew steadily over the years. As it grew, it became more sophisticated and more populated. The basis for its success was, of course, the river. Nestled as it was in a natural slow bend in the Thames, Londonwick was able to not just get people travelling to market on foot, but also travelling to market on boat. From Kent in the south, Essex in the east and Wessex in the west, Londonwick started to become a thriving little trade port. Londonwick didn't exist in a vacuum, however, so ends up being part of the political status quo. It normally comes under the jurisdiction of the kings of the East Saxons for much of its initial history. And this link is responsible for the first overlord of the city who was to have an impact upon its future development, a man called King Schled of Essex. Schled was in charge of the city when one Saint Augustine, the missionary of Pope Gregory the Great, arrived in Britain to reorganise the scattered Christians of the island in around the year 601. Augustine had wanted to create two archbishoprics to run the Christian church in Britain. In the north, there would be York, and in the south, Londonwick. His problem? Well, Schled was in charge of Londonwick, and he was a rather proud pagan. No way he would allow these Christians set up shop in his market town. As such, Augustine was forced to compromise. York was duly set up, but the southern archdiocese ended up being dumped in Canterbury. Still, despite missing that opportunity, Schled dies soon after, and by 604, the first version of the Church of St. Paul's is erected in the town, supposedly under the orders of the very powerful King of Kent at the time, a man called Ethelbert. 
London found itself becoming a prize to be desired. The emergent kingdoms of Kent, Essex and East Anglia all saw their influence upon the market town wax and wane from 600 to 660, but eventually it was to come under the direct control of the powerful English state of Mercia. It was in 661 that King Wulfhira of Mercia becomes our second ruler of the city of note when he launched a raid south of the Mercian heartlands in the Midlands, took lands as far south as the coast, and became the accepted overlords of the kings of Essex. Indeed, as soon as 666, for example, we have Wulfhiri able to offer the title of Bishop of London to an itinerant Frankish cleric for a hefty bribe. Mercia was to retain nominal control over Ludenwick for the next 200 years through the subsequent 19 rulers who followed Wulfhira. During the next few years, as Mercian influence grew, Ludenwick's tradability also grew. Traders came from further afield, once again arriving from overseas, as they'd done centuries before in the Roman era. Slowly, of course, and in tiny numbers, but having a fixed permanent marketplace open to the sea as it was made Londonwick a desirable and profitable location. By the 730s, this success and profitability was great enough that the Mercians built a royal mint in Londonwick, and some of the first coins used as currency in Britain in hundreds of years, the Sciata, were minted there. By 7.30 also, we know that Londonwick is growing increasingly sophisticated. We have a market town running a complex series of tithes, taxes, tolls and levies on trade. We now had people living there whose job it was to oversee the administration of such complicated systems. And there seems to have been an infrastructure designed to maintain, if not outright construct, merchant ships. In many ways, Mercy and Londonwick was to reach its zenith under the dominion of one King Offa, our third ruler of the town of great significance. It was in his reign that Londonwick became a true emporium, trading with the likes of Dorsted over in Frisia, which is today's Belgium, or Quintovich on the Frankish coast, today's France. Londonwick became a veritable trade hothouse, part of a European-wide trade network that suddenly seems to have emerged, uh, with King Offa actually able to mint gold coins with Arabic design features on them. Offa was able to access way more bullion than Britain had seen for hundreds of years, leading to an explosion on coin use and coin manufacturing during his era. This increased European trade, and with it, European trade regulations, tolls and duties, was demonstrated when King Offa had a falling out with the great continental powerhouse Charlemagne. Rather than go to war with one another, the two men engaged in a trade war, banning each other's goods for a few years, and their correspondence after this was reconciled reveals trade competition between the Mercians and the Frankish kingdom was to remain a bone of contention between the two kings. Offer would write to complain about the substandard nature of Frankish goods for sale in Londonwick. Charlemagne would complain about merchants from Londonwick trying to avoid paying local taxes and duties. By the 790s then, Londonwick was a dynamic, 
trade emporium for the surprisingly sophisticated nation of Mercia, who was the most powerful polity on the Isle of Britain. But Offa reached his zenith in power due to something that foretold a dark future for everyone. Towards the end of his reign, King Offa was able to extend his influence into Kent, eventually subjugating the kingdom and making it a puppet state of Mercia for a while. The reason for this weakening of Kent does seem to be due to a growing series of pirate raids. Seaborne raiders would suddenly attack ports or settlements down rivers from the sea. The authorities couldn't cope, and so Mercia seemed to step in, and we see Offa issuing clear instructions as to how to help defend the region from these pirates. And even though no one said it at the time, no one uses the words Scandinavian or Dane or Viking, this is the first hint of the Viking menace to come. When Offa died, the Mercy in Londonwick continued happy and strong for a while, but a combination of things was to see it go into decline. Partly, these were internal reasons. After 821, Mercia, as a nation, began to experience geopolitical instability. The long reigns of kings such as Offa were replaced by short, unstable periods of rulership, and over the next 30 years, Mercia declined in wealth, power, and above all, political stability. At the same time, over in the previously under-the-thumb kingdom of Wessex, a new power arose in the form of one King Egbert. He launched a series of attacks upon Mercia in 826 and 829, which saw him briefly take over the entire kingdom, an event he commemorated by having the Royal Mint in Londonwick create specific coins, naming him as the first Wessex king who is overlord of London. Yet London was spared somewhat by Egbert overextending himself, trying and failing to subjugate Northumbria before he'd even began to consolidate his control over Mercia, and Londonwick was back under Mercian control within a year or so. However, the town was suffering, as not all their issues were domestic. Across Europe, we see that in trade emporiums of the North Sea, there was an overall decline in profits and profitability. A continent-wide recession seemed to be taking place, and for trade ports like Londonwick, this impacted especially harshly upon them. Yet the final cause of the decline of Mercia was, of course, the by now obvious to everyone rise in the dangers posed by the Vikings. But even here, London's story presents us with something slightly more sophisticated than the traditional narrative. We know that Scandinavians, from the period of from around the 780s until the 830s, were going around and raiding or going a Viking, but they were also trading legitimately. And to certain places like London, they were always trading legitimately. Indeed, there is growing evidence to suggest that during this initial 50-year period of the Viking Age, two whole generations really, the Scandinavians were seen in Londonwick not as Vikings, but as profitable trading partners. They would import furs and fashion accessories that were much in demand, and the residents liked to emulate their fashion styles all the way down to copying Viking haircuts, so much so that local priests would complain bitterly about it. 
Yeah, sure, these guys were raiding and despoiling elsewhere, especially Scotland and Ireland, but to Londonwick, there's a real sense that they never saw the Vikings as a threat in those early decades. Indeed, we have examples of Mercians probably living in Londonwick acting as middlemen to negotiate the release of European-based hostages taken by the Vikings. Londonwick isn't really a place that fears the Vikings. It's the kind of place where a guy knows a guy who can organise ransoms for the Vikings. Partly, this was down to the fact that Londonwick, like a few other ports along the North Sea coast, was a profitable hub for Scandinavian merchants, who basically, back home, would bring harsh justice to any Viking who raided their customers. This gave London, and a few other places, a degree of protection, at least for the first few decades. However, due to long and convoluted reasons, the Vikings began amassing away from their homelands in Scandinavia, and a large and growing diaspora began developing on the Irish Sea. Vikings here were able to assemble ad hoc fleets under competent leaders chosen by the crews of the longships themselves. This facilitated bigger raids against more powerful targets. And at the same time, the recession hitting the North Sea entropots, coupled with a civil war and chaos in the previously united Frankish kingdoms, meant that Scandinavian merchants were no longer making any profits to complain about if their customers were being raided. The ideal conditions for Viking raids to properly step up a gear had begun. All bets were off. Everyone was a target now. By 840, the Vikings began attacking Mercia in large numbers for the first time. Ultimately, this led to 842 and the first recorded Viking raid upon London. The impact of the raid seems minimal and Londonwick clearly survives and carries on as if very little happens. If there was a raid, it wasn't especially serious. But in 851, a second attack happens. A vast force of thousands of raiders who rampage across Kent turn up and devastate the town. Londonwick was burned and ravaged and would bear the scars of this attack for many years. In many ways, in fact, it never recovered from the attack of 851. And yet, in the aftermath of this, London first shows the tenacity that the city would become famous for. See, across Europe, other ports and entropots were being ravaged by the Vikings, and some, like mighty Quintovich, never recovered and died as a trade-down and is today utterly forgotten about, appearing on no maps. London, by contrast, endured. It carried on. By now, across Britain, a vast horde of Vikings from the diaspora landed on British shores, the so-called Great Heathen Army. For the first few years, London avoided their attention, but eventually the town ended up as the front line. A Viking commander from the Irish Sea Diaspora called Halfdan Whiteshirt made a temporary peace deal with the forces of Wessex and Mercia, and over the winter of 872, Halfdan and his massive Viking army wintered in or around Londonwick. Halfdan commemorated the Viking occupation of the town by minting a series of coins with his name on them in the London Mint and enters our list of important figures in London's history solely because he was the first Viking to be in charge of the town. 
but the Viking occupation only lasted a single, seemingly peaceful winter, and London returns to being a town mostly away from the fighting between Wessex, under their King Alfred, and the Vikings, now led by an ambitious but ultimately flawed general called Guthrum. The tale of Alfred's victory over Guthrum in 879 is a familiar one to many, yet London's story allows us to see this familiar narrative in a whole new light. Things were not cut and dried immediately after Alfred's victory in 879. He was not automatically the ruler of the south, and Guthrum was not the ruler of a region called the Danelaw. Sure, in time, there was going to be this massive region in the north of England called the Danelaw, and in time, Alfred really would dominate the south. But London found itself in the immediate aftermath, where things were fluid and very confusing. Alfred had just ended the state of Mercia, and he did so by creating a new identity for the people under his rule. He called them the Anglesin, the English kind, what we call the Anglo-Saxons. And he does begin to try to consolidate his lands, but there is confusion everywhere. Upriver from London, for example, a huge force of Vikings gather at Fulham, before seemingly agreeing to leave Alfred's lands. They then travel to Europe and rampage like no other force had had done before across the Frankish kingdoms, leaving havoc in their wake. And sometime around 885, some of them then return back to England, and there is a breakdown in the peace treaty between Wessex and the Vikings. Battles rage across the east coast, and while it only lasts a year, and while it does see those Vikings return back to Europe, it was this breakdown in the treaty between the Vikings and Wessex in 885 that led Alfred of Wessex to finalise a process that had probably just started a few years earlier. Londonwick was seen as indefensible, and so in 886, Alfred the Great ordered London to be rebuilt back in the now easier to settle lands behind the remains of the old Roman walls. This new town, London Burr, the London Fortress, was created in and around what we today call the City of London. And Alfred's great contribution to London's history was moving it to its current location. But he doesn't rule it directly. He grants it to his son-in-law, Ethelred of Mercia, and the new London remains briefly a Mercian town with a Mercian overlord running it on behalf of a Wessex king. Supposedly a perfect working example of what Alfred wanted to show in the Anglesin. Yet I feel this is where we see the birth of another group of people. The London Sin. The London kind. Because a new mentality enters the city as it becomes much more aggressive and much more daring after its move to its current location. During a particularly large invasion of Viking raiders from France in the year 894, there begins a four-year campaign which was to see both the Viking-dominated kingdoms of East Anglia and Northumbria join forces with these newcomers to attack Wessex and this four-year war was also when London first marched to war. The first time they sent out their forces was to support the heir to the throne, the Aetheling Edward, in besieging a group of Vikings on Thorny Island, today's Westminster, where Edward convinced them to return to East Anglia without a fight. 
Soon after this, led by Lord Aethelred of Mercia, the residents of London attack a Viking base in Benfleet, destroying it and capturing a bunch of ships and also capturing the Vikings' families who they found there, turning them into slaves. This camp had been run by a dangerous Viking warlord called Haston, and he seemed set on retaliating against London. A year later, his ships sail up the River Thames, but since there is no bridge in place to stop him, he surprises all by sailing right past London and deeper into the English countryside. As his campaign carries on, a new Viking force settle in Hartford, attempting to create a new Viking bastion and town close to London and undermining its ability to dominate the region. The Londoners march out a third time, but this time they are massacred and repulsed, and it takes King Alfred to turn up to blockade the Vikings in Hartford, which forces them to flee, and then allows London to march out a fourth time to burn the settlement to the ground. By the 900s then, London is firmly a London sin town, ferocious and angry. An organisation arises called the Peace Guild, which seems to run the town. It's a body dedicated to creating mobs of Londoners who are there to protect the residents' property from theft, an angry, bloody-minded body who were to slowly become the first civic leaders of the city-to-be. During the 10th century, we know there was huge amounts of investment into Southwark, possibly to construct the bridge. Hailson's attack upon the heartland of Wessex obviously convinced someone of the need to rebuild the ancient Roman bridge, and so they started the project at some point during this century. And it was to do so during an era of extraordinary change. If all that has been so far is just introduction, establishing locations and places for the tale of the city to come, then what follows is an amazing period in London's history. Now, from the point of view of British history, we enter the events of the later Anglo-Saxon era. You know, the wars between the English and the Vikings in the Dane law, and the occupation of the kingdom by Danish royalty, and then eventually the arrival of William the Conqueror about 150 years from now. But from the point of view of London, History does not follow that pattern. What actually follows now, in the next season, is over 200 years of a very differing story, of a nation cast adrift on the stormy seas of instability, and how London's growing wealth and power made it begin to stand tall, not just as a city within England, but as a power upon the land itself. British history will have you think that the coming of the Normans changed the narrative of the Ireland's tale, you know, 1066 and all of that. But to London, 1066 isn't even close to being the most important year in the next two centuries. We end the tale so far then with this hint of things to come. Season 2 of the story of London, The Kingdom of London, begins next episode with a new chapter, and so that's it for now. As always, if you look in the description of this episode, you'll find a link to a rough script of this episode, and starting now and every week or so going forward, we'll continue the story of London through one of its more exciting eras. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, 
I really hope you enjoyed it. And feel free to check out the previous 17 episodes where, as I said, I go into way more detail about things. If you enjoyed it, please leave a like or a five-star review as this does impress the machine overlords who run podcast algorithms. And I'll see you next week for another chapter in the continuing story of London. Thanks. Thanks.